Greetings and welcome to the latest edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcast, produced in collaboration with the BJSM. I'm your host, Dr. Jake Wessels, and I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Adam Tenforti. Dr. Adam Tenforti is a physician at Spalding Rehabilitation, which is now part of Mass General Brigham Healthcare. He's an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. He did his training at Stanford University and was an integral part of multiple national championships with the distance track and field team. He's the director of running medicine at Spalding National Running Center and has a special interest in today's topic, extracorporeal shockwave therapy. Greetings, Dr. 1040. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting topic and something that I've uh, wanted to dive into a little bit more. Tell me more about ESWT, or is that what you call it? Sure. So there's a number of different terms that individuals will use, uh, shockwave therapy, ESWT, or even some of the devices such as EPAT. But essentially what shockwave is, is a non-invasive strategy that aims to help with the management of musculoskeletal injuries. We think there are two mechanisms for action. One is to stimulate tissue healing and remodeling. The second is around reducing pain. And the goal of this treatment is in combination with appropriate exercise program. So through physical therapy to provide the right mechanical stimuli to allow for tissue to heal, remodel, and for athletes to restore function of their injured tissues. Yeah, that sounds like, you know, what we're trying to do for our patients and athletes all the time. So it sounds, you know, like excellent potential. Do we, do we understand how it works or have you done research and looked into that? how we think it helps with those things? Absolutely. So a lot of a lot of the work on how we understand shockwave can be used in orthopedic uh, sports medicine comes from work that was performed in Europe uh, starting in the 1990s. Uh, one of the first applications was in the management of painful uh, plantar heel pain. And Earlier, we thought of shockwave as something that was used to treat uh, kidney stones, uh, otherwise lithotripsy. So there were early observations that shockwave could be destructive to, to a renal stone, but there were also other biological effects on tissue, including thickening of the pelvic bone over the area that was treated with shockwave, recognizing then that shockwave could not only be destructive, but it could also have anabolic properties. Hmm. So some of the work started with plantar heel pain, plantar fasciitis, and then has expanded to the management of other soft tissue injuries with more recent work looking at the management of other conditions, including myofascial pain, spasticity, arthritis, and even spine-mediated pain. Wow, that sounds like you could use shockwave therapy like, it's like, sounds like magic. It can do everything. So I, I sometimes come across as an enthusiast where people will ask me, what can't it do? So, <laughs> so what I like to focus on is where is the evidence? And so I've written a number of reviews that aim to synthesize what has been evaluated at the cellular level. Mm. So there are changes at the cellular level, which suggest biological plausibility for disrupting inflammatory pathways, promoting possible 
migration, such as tenocyte migration and the management of tendinopathy. And then from, from the pain standpoint, a number of different theories. One that, that I commonly will describe to my patients is a process called hyperstimulation analgesia, mm. which means that when you treat over an injured area, we commonly see that a patient will have pain initially as the shockwave treatment progresses. And again, shockwave typically uses sound waves and pressure waves with a goal of stimulating a longer term uh, disruption of diseased tissue and promoting tissue remodeling, which we believe through an inflammatory cascade. Hmm. But one of the more immediate effects is that as the shockwave is applied to a tissue, we oftentimes will see a reduction in pain. And this hyperstimulation analgesia is thought to be overwhelming the C fibers, which then leads to shutting off the pain signal to the injured tissue. So we'll actually see this blissful response in a number of patients that despite the treatment being painful, afterwards, the patient is able to load the tissue and we'll see a temporary reduction in pain. We believe then with the hyperstimulation analgesic response that that leads to a secondary cascade of growth factors, which may then promote the tissue healing and remodeling. So very similar to doing other procedures where we might do pre-post testing of internal range of motion after performing a hip intraarticular injection to understand the distribution of pain from a joint sure. or the amount of range of motion limitations from uh, pain. We, we can see very similar approaches of treating someone's hamstring and then performing a bent knee stretch test and seeing whether that patient has a reduction in pain, which helps us to feel more confident that we have the correct diagnosis and that our treatment is targeting the injured tissue. So we also will see in more experienced providers that shockwave is sometimes used as a diagnostic, which is mm. a really fun way of thinking about a procedure having many uses to help the patient. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the t drawbacks that seems like of other things, getting people to buy into PT. It's like, this is going to take a long time, but trust me, it's going to help versus do this now. And if they feel better, they're going to buy in sooner. So you, you kind of mentioned an experienced provider, you know, I don't do shockwave therapy, but how, what type of experience you're talking about? Like thousands of these or hundred, how, how do you get to be able to use it like that? So a lot of the approach is having the background in sports medicine, understanding the framework for thinking through what is the injury that you're diagnosing and treating. Mm -hmm. When you have a good understanding of the tissue anatomy, um, directing the shockwave then is really about understanding what are the goals of treatment and what is the best evidence. Mm -hmm. So we recently published in an uh, AMSSM sponsored a journal of, of physical medicine and rehabilitation, a special issue in, in sports topics. And um, I was the lead on a best practice piece on shockwave therapy. And what I've recognized is there's been a real growth in the use of shockwave in the community and a greater interest in North America, because again, this has been more of a Eurocentric or um, a treatment that's been done more in Asia. And so as we start to do these treatments and I see my colleagues interested in performing shockwave, I think it's very important for individuals to have a framework for understanding the best science, 
the frequency of use, the importance of physical therapy, the importance of not using analgesics that could potentially interfere with identifying the areas of injury. So there are a number of different factors. And so we outline this in an, in an open access article, which I, I encourage individuals to look at who are interested in performing shockwave. Uh, that, that tends to be one of the key barriers, which is that people will be interested in performing shockwave, but they just don't know where to get started. So understanding the framework, understanding the basis for the treatment is, is one of the first steps. And then there are a number of different companies that make Shockwave, understanding the different ways that Shockwave can be used. There's radial Shockwave, which individuals will refer to as pressure wave. And there's focus Shockwave, which tends to use electrohydraulic technology to create sound waves. Hmm. And these uh, different Shockwave devices can be adjusted to generate either low, moderate, or high energy. And, and that becomes very important when we think about the injuries we're trying to treat. Hmm. When I got started, um, and this is pretty common when individuals start to do shockwave, most will start with the use of radial shockwave or radial pressure wave. That's because the device tends to be less expensive, has a better rating from the FDA in terms of its safety. It's considered a class one device. And it can be used at low and moderate energy to treat a number of musculoskeletal injuries. Where my practice evolved to was the goal to try to be able to treat injuries that require high energy shockwave. And that is, that's uh, largely impossible to meet that energy flux density using a radial pressure wave device, Mm. at least the ones that are uh, commercially available. So when you're using focus shockwave, what that allows you to do is to target certain pathologies such as avascular necrosis of the hip, Mm. bone marrow lesions, or even to treat stress fractures, which again are a clinical conundrum, which I've commonly treated. And it's been nice to have something to offer individuals other than this is the great injury. This is the amount of time it will take. Here are the biological factors we can manage. We can also have a more targeted intervention that can complement understanding and the education around the treatment of this injury to uh, hopefully stimulate healing and a more predictable outcome of complete healing and return to sport. Wow. Can I let me just make sure I'm following that last piece? It sounded exciting. You're you're talking about for some of the shockwave radial, you know, some of this type, you're you're targeting disease tissue to kind of restructure it back towards normal, but you're also can use directed therapy, you called it pulsed, I think, or more a higher energy therapy, and you're putting it over the site of bone injury to encourage healing. Is that right? Right. So what focus shockwave will do is it generates more of a the analogy I like to use having young kids is it's like Star Wars and okay. it's the Death Star. Okay. <laughs> the, the focus shockwave can penetrate up to six centimeters of tissue and provide a, through the lenses that are available for the device to create a very high amount of energy in a very targeted area of treatment. Mm-hmm. Contrast radial pressure waves are similar to dropping a rock in a pond where you have these pressure waves, which will kind of ripple and have more of a diffuse effect. 
So the pressure waves are more sinusoidal in nature when you when you see them plotted out for the energy delivered in a both positive and negative phase. Hmm. The sound waves have a very high amplitude initial positive energy wave with a lower amplitude negative energy wave. And those sound waves have different different effects on the diseased tissue. Okay. I'll sometimes use the sound waves and the pressure waves. So again, the, the focus shock wave with the radial shock wave to treat uh, other injuries such as a calcific tendinopathy, where we may want to use higher energy shock wave targeting a calcific lesion within the tissue, or we might have painful anisopathy. So someone with insertional Achilles tendinopathy, where mm. If we apply the pressure waves directly over that calcaneal attachment, those pressure waves will be too irritating to the periosteum, mm. but, the, but the sound waves from the focus shockwave device can be directed directly at the bone. And even if we see some bone edema from the traction of the tendon, we can target that more effectively with the focus shockwave. So I published on outcomes looking at how you can combine focus shockwave with radial shockwave and at least a, a way of looking at quality improvement within my clinic. You know, to date, I've probably treated over 1,800 athletes and active individuals in the first five years of practice. And I think it's really important in our sports medicine community because one of the key push, pushback we get on Shockwave is having good data to document efficacy. Mm -hmm. That would allow for us then to advocate for policy changes that might allow this to be uh, covered by insurance providers. Yeah, I think that's good. I, that's what I was looking through. A couple, you have a couple different articles that mention it, and you, I think you do a good job laying out what the variables are and giving even a little guidance on, you know, what would be a good starting point or what makes sense on some of the variables. Like, you know, one of the things is like, should you use coupling gel with it? And then the takeaway is use it. I think the paper makes it a lot more approachable for someone who doesn't do it regularly. One of my questions is kind of around how it's actually done. This is at an office visit with you. Do you do the first treatment and then you turn it off to an assistant or is this a range of providers? Tell me more about that. You know, there's a lot of important considerations, which are first, you want to feel comfortable that you have a good treatment team in place. So the protocol that we have been following and, and really went through vetting within our institution was making sure that we felt that we had the right, the right safety standpoint and the right amount of supervision for not just myself to perform shockwave, but for physician extenders to also be able to work with me to deliver the shockwave treatment. Okay. And so... I will perform the first treatment in any patient who comes through my clinic for shockwave therapy because, again, having, having reviewed the literature, having published on my outcomes, this is part of informed consent, being able to discuss the risk benefits and alternatives, and then to understand the relative risk profile of, of the different forms of shockwave that we deliver. Um, I have physician extenders who I've personally trained and will carry the treatment through, but with the understanding that I am available to help answer questions so that patients are not feeling like if they're not experiencing the relief they're looking for, or if they have questions about the post-shockwave protocol, that I'm able to, to clarify. We've created a common question-answer sheet. I think that can be very helpful for patients. 
it's very similar to what we recommend after platelet-rich plasma injection in avoiding anti-inflammatories, the importance of physical therapy. But one of the advantages of shockwave over platelet-rich plasma and other cell-based regenerative medicine interventions is that we don't necessarily need to restrict physical activity with patients. Mm. So it's done in an outpatient setting. We don't use anesthetics because anesthetics have actually been shown to reduce the efficacy of treatment, again, mm-hmm. probably because it disrupts the ability to use clinical focusing. So treating over areas of pain and getting the feedback from the patient to direct the treatment, but also the inability to achieve hyperstimulation analgesia by disrupting those pain fibers. And for the most part, most of the areas we treat can be, uh, that treatment can be accomplished within 10 to 15 minutes. We start with three weekly sessions. Mm. We know that the full effects of shockwave are seen eight to 12 weeks out. So there is follow-up that we perform with the individuals. We presented recently at AMSSM uh, some of our use of telehealth to do follow-up visits for individuals receiving shockwave, Mm. finding that to be quite an effective way to continue the patient education piece, to understand the treatment response, and to understand further dosing for interventions. We've looked at our shockwave outcomes, oftentimes seeing a ceiling effect uh, by six sessions of treatment. And I think that's very important in the community because for shockwave to be a non-covered benefit, some uh, providers will charge by session. We charge a flat rate because Mm. we think that's a better way for us to defray the cost for the patient by charging an upfront cost, which accounts for the average number of sessions that are required to achieve treatment effect. And it really shows, hey, we're all bought in on working together on this treatment and we're going to do everything we can to optimize the response. Got it. I did see a couple of spots that you had, I think, in one of your papers that said FDA or USDA or something approved for a couple indications. Do, are there insurances that cover some of some indications or is it pretty much out of pocket for all? So what I've been doing is, is trying to publish on my outcomes again with the hope that I can help to advocate for policy changes. Um, I found that almost with the exception of rarely workers' compensation, shockwave is considered experimental. There are common confusion where patients will look up shockwave and they'll see it as a a covered uh, benefit. But oftentimes I think that is misunderstood in the context of lithotripsy, which is again, a form of shockwave. I believe that. But but in, in most states, shockwave is unfortunately not covered by the traditional insurance market. So there is that out-of-pocket cost and that becomes a barrier The nice part about Shockwave is that there is a cost for the device um, and there is a cost for for upkeep and maintenance, but some of the devices I've had, they're absolute workhorses. You know, five years into treatment, my my first radial Shockwave device is still 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 kicking after probably 40 million strikes. So it's really about having equipment that you feel comfortable has some good, uh, good science behind its development and that you're maintaining a good, uh, good maintenance and upkeep. All right. We're, we're running uh, through a lot of stuff here. We've covered a, a huge swath, but one of my last things I wanted to just maybe take away for our listeners is 
what would be some of the main go-to conditions? You brought up plantar fascia as a starting place. What are some of the other, you know, I'm looking to get into shockwave therapy or I'm just struggling with these conditions. What would be, what would you bring this to the top of your list as a, as someone who practices this a lot? Absolutely. So in the lower extremity, I, I really feel there is a number of good level one studies showing that shockwave is effective for plantar fasciitis. Uh, we've done a network meta-analysis showing that shockwave with uh, exercise program can be quite effective for mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. There is an excellent uh, study by Cascio for proximal hamstring tendinopathy with radial shockwave. In the upper extremity, calcific tendinopathy of the shoulder, and even treatment of lateral elbow pain. But I, I do believe that for most soft tissue injuries, most forms of tendinopathy, fasciopathy, IT band syndrome, hmm. these are very, this is a very reasonable uh, treatment option. And where I think we're going to start to see the science move towards is how we can use this more effectively hmm. in stress fracture management. There are some level four studies on that how we can use it in osteoarthritis management. So we can actually think about both intra and extra articular causes of joint pain and have more targeted interventions. I think we're gonna see the science move towards how shockwave can be used in combination with other forms of regenerative medicine, such as shockwave with platelet-rich plasma. And I think it's a very exciting frontier where we are gonna be able through some of the work I'm doing at Mass General Brigham uh, as part of Spalding Rehabilitation to better phenotype the injured uh, individual and to understand more targeted interventions that will lead to better outcomes and, and better value-based care. That was like a whirlwind exp you know, exploration of ESWT, shockwave therapy. Anything else that you want our listeners to know about shockwave therapy or other good resources? Yeah, so there's the work that I published on recently and really made an attempt to make that open access because I think it's important for us to be able to share to share a lot of the primary science with our patients. Uh, runners that I take care of are very are, are just very curious. They're very interested in data. But I, I look at myself as standing on the shoulder of giants. There are some amazing individuals that have done this work a lot out, out of Europe. And I continue to enjoy learning from others, collaboration. I encourage uh, those that are thinking about doing Shockwave to, to read, read the science, understand the best practices, apply those in clinic, collect outcomes, continue to challenge yourself on what you're doing so that you can really uh, evolve your practice to provide the best treatment possible for patients. And to also think about how as an AMSSM community, we can collaborate together generating big data that can actually help us to answer these questions and, and to really work together as a community to really advance the science that will help help to take care of our, our mutual patients. Excellent. Well, Dr. 1040, thank you so much for your time. This was really interesting to hear about. And um, I still have a, a lot of questions. I think we might have to do a part two of this sometime and, and get an update from you. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. A special thanks again to you, our listener, for being here with us today, and we hope that you can join us again on our next edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcasts.